Hello and welcome to the Super 6 podcast. Do not adjust your settings. You are in the right place. This is, I'm afraid, Laura Woods is not here. But the good news is, Adebayo Akinfenwa is here with me, David Jones, host of Monday Night Football. Bayo, why are you looking so confused? I, hold on, hold on, hold on. Where's LW? I'm just thinking, wait, 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 this ain't Monday night. I'm trying, I'm used to watching you on the big screen. Like, what, what's going on? Hey, listen, listen. LW's gone big time anyway. So, listen, I hear she may be not here for yeah, a week. Yeah, she's gone big time. Just like Man City squad, the Liverpool squad, when you flip in, you come in with equal pedigree and man's got DJ with me today. What's going on, DJ? <laughs> you're used to sitting opposite an oil painting and now you're you're sitting opposite a painting of oil. You know, that's that's how you must be feeling oh, right DJ. now. You've ordered a plate of caviar and you've got a Yorkshire pudding. But, you know, we'll make the <laughs> most of it by it. DJ, come on now, V. Bob, your caliber, <laughs> caliber, your top, your top flight. Listen, LW, she's cool, but you top flight. Make sure she don't hear me say this, but you top flight now. I feel like I'm moving up in the world. <laughs> well, I feel the same. You know, I've, I've listened to this. Uh, I've long been a fan and an admirer, Bio. I love your energy and your enthusiasm. I've loved watching you play football. I have to say, I've not really enjoyed watching you play against my team uh, a couple of times because you're a destroyer. You're an evil destroyer when you're on that field, Bio. I'm nice. I'm nice. You know, I get this. You know the perception that I'm a beast and I'm a nice guy. Come on now. Unless you're a centre-back, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> so listen, tell me what's been going and what happened to Wickham. I mean, you've had you've had uh, a bit of a roller coaster week. Yeah, yeah. Played last night. What well, a team played. I'm injured. Um, I'm ho- Hopefully I'm back weekend, if not next week. Uh, reoccurrence of the knee. But yeah, listen, played... Brilliant against Huddersfield. Come back from 2-0 down, 1-3-2. Then we had Rooney's derby at Adams Park last night. And listen, I know for the second half, we totally battered them. Like, got it back to 1-1. And just, just the story of our championship, the sense they had one chance and then just scored last minute of the game. And I think, like, that's what we're learning with the championship is that, of course, there's it's small DLs and it's just the small margins. And... We're learning on the job. Um, but listen, the Wickham way, we'll keep fighting, 17 games to go. I'll always say, if you're going to go down, no, no, I'll even say you're going to go down, like to always go to every game swinging. And that's what Wickham's going to do. So it's tough. I ain't going to lie, it's tough, but games come thick and fast and we go again. Absolutely. It's all you can do, isn't it? I just had this image of you last night because I knew you weren't, you weren't playing, you were injured, uh, of you sort of being on the touchline, noising up Wayne Rooney. Did you get the chance to do that? To be fair, like, I, I didn't because I had my shoes on. Like, you know, we had to go on. I didn't want to get my shoes messy, so I sat in the stands and that. And I was <laughs> watching him, though, and he don't say a word, you know. Like, I was watching, like, the contrast of both managers, like, Gareth Ainsworth, he is, he headers, he kicks, he shouts, you know, he's like, and I was watching Rooney, and Rooney is just methodical, but he didn't, he didn't yell one time, walked up and down, and I'm looking at him, and of course it's Rooney, and as a striker, you're looking at him, thinking, right, oh, that's, that's 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 big dog Rooney, and that, and it wouldn't have been right of me, I couldn't have like grabbed up Rooney, that's Rooney, you know what I'm saying, like, you know, so I figured I'd stay in the stand and that, and that'd be cool. <laughs> It's interesting you say that, you know, about the different technique of managers, because you do see some that that are very methodical, as you say. They they like to think they do a bit like, the, I suppose, the, the rugby approach. They do all their work in the week, all their preparation in the week. On match day, you have to embolden your players to take responsibility on the pitch. But of course, 
you know, every every coach has their own philosophy. Every 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 coach has the different energy that they want to bring to it. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, I for me, I'm about energy. And I love the way I, I I want my manager to be kicking and screaming. I, I actually do. Like when I see Klopp on the touchline, you know, like Gareth Ainsworth, I like that. I like, because that's it. I'm very passionate. I'm very loud. So I like that. I like to emulate my manager sort of thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Each their own. I've had all different types of managers who are, like you said, very methodical in their approach. But for me, I gravitate to that passionate, loud want a header, want to kick every ball sort of thing. So, but yeah, man, that's, you know, different strokes and different <laughs> Absolutely. Folks. Well, listen, Bayo, I know you're a big Liverpool fan. So I've got a little treat for you today on the podcast because uh, this being a Monday night football takeover, it wouldn't be complete without my other half of Monday night football. The one, the only Jamie Carragher is joining us on the podcast. So Are we are setting it up. It is. You like. I'm bringing it for you because I know you're a big fan. This is Bootle and the Beast in front of you today. Oh, hey, DJ, I told you I'm moving up in the world. <laughs> and now I'm rolling with upper enchilant individuals and you're bringing JC, who's my guy. So I got DJ and JC. I am looking forward to this. I'm going to jump in with him because he doesn't hold his tongue. So I like this. Predict six correct scores on Super 6 this week for a chance to win £250,000. Download the app and play by 3pm on Saturday. Head to skysports.com forward slash Super 6 for more details. So, Bayer, we we've got a real treat today. We are joined by a man who rarely gives interviews. You, you rarely hear him speak in public. You know, this is not like someone who's, who's got his own podcast, TV show, you know, on everything, written a book. It's not like, oh, no, sorry, that's my old script. Yeah, sorry, I got the wrong script there. This <laughs> delighted to welcome Jamie Carragher bio. This is the proper Monday Night Football takeover. I know. Listen, there's no fake. This, this is the real me now. You forget the books, forget the podcast. You're going to get the real me. The real yes, yes, yes. Listen, let me say something. I'm in it. So the last couple of weeks in it, we've had like strikers who I've looked up to in it, like that's gone through like the ranks. And listen, there's no hiding it. Like I'm a Liverpool supporter in it. I'm a Liverpool fan. And like, see, I'm going to call you. DJ, and I'm call you JC in it. So now I've got for me growing up a Liverpool legend. So I'm kind of gassed. So welcome, JC. How you doing, Broski? I'm on absolute fire. I can't believe I'm on a podcast with Bio and I'm getting interviewed by the main man. So uh, <laughs> what am I calling you then? Is it just back away, JC and DJ? You're uh... yeah, yeah. You call me Bio, man. You call me Beast Mod either way, man. Call me Bio. Any, whatever you want to call me, JC. I'm Be- cool with you. Get me. <laughs> I like, I like the beach mod. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool, let's roll. All right, all right, let's let's roll into this. So I did some research, yeah? I went down this professional role. I did some research about you. I knew you was an Everton supporter, but I didn't know that you was a Everton, Everton supporter. So you used to be an Everton supporter now? No, not now. I, I was when I was a kid. I was a big fan, yeah. It's nothing... Uh... You haven't got an exclusive with that one. Don't worry. It was. Uh, it's well known. I was. Yeah, I went to the games home and away. Everton were really successful in the mid eighties. Yeah, so I was a big Everton fan before I uh, obviously started full time at uh, Liverpool and was getting in the reserves in the first team. So how was it like? You know, supporting Everton as a kid and then going across to their main rivals. How was that? Was there any conflict as a kid, or was that just easy for you to to make the transition? No, no, it was fine. Uh, for me, as I said, I was I was a mad Evertonian. I went to Liverpool, and let's not forget, Liverpool were the best team in the country at that time. They were rivaling Everton, but everyone knew Liverpool was sort of top dogs. 
at that stage. And, and you know, for me, Dad, who was a big Evertonian as well, basically when you, when your son's involved and your kid's involved, you want him to go to the best place for him. And, and the best place to, for me to learn and practice football was Liverpool. They were the best. They played a, a different style of football possibly to anyone else in the first division at that time. And uh, also, they, they were the first club to ask me, so that always helps. <laughs> so there wasn't really a real decision. I was never going to turn that down. So, no, I can still picture it now in, in the, uh, the dressing room when uh, the school teacher came in or the uh, the school's uh, manager for Bootle Boys. And he uh, he said four of us were going down to uh, to train with Liverpool. Myself, John Stannard, Paul Joyce and Stephen Gould. So the four of us got picked out. And uh, I think we were all nine or ten. They were a year older than me. I was, I was a year below, so I would have only been uh, eight or nine. And uh, it went from there. And obviously... John Stannard, actually, he went and played for Liverpool Reserves. Paul Joyce got released, I think, around about schoolboy forms. And I think Stephen Gould lasted 12, 18 months, really. So we all had sort of different uh, pathways, the four of us, from, you know, we got chosen that day. But Bio, did you know this? Did you know that Jamie was actually a striker? No, I didn't. JC talked. Oh, I love this. I knew I'd find out stuff about this. You started off as a striker? Yes, and uh, I was a very good one, by the way. I, uh, I still hold the record for little boys, goal scorer. <laughs> Would you believe, Bio, my first game for Liverpool Reserves, so not kids football, Liverpool Reserves as a centre-forward. No. My, uh, my first game for Liverpool. I played for England at uh, to, until under-16 level as a centre-forward. I went to the national school. So, yeah, I was a, I was a quality centre-forward in my younger days, but uh, ended up going further back. because I mean, I, I wouldn't say I lost. I was, I was never the quickest. I was quite quick as a young kid. But uh, I'd have never been good enough to be a professional centre-forward, may- maybe lower leagues or something like that. But, I mean, that's not too difficult down there, is it, being a striker? Fact, do you know the worst thing is, what the hell would you mean? What do you mean? Don't think I didn't clock that, you know. Man said, yeah, you know, lower league striker. Don't think I didn't clock that. <laughs> I thought I thought this was a banter podcast. <laughs> you watch when I see you. Don't think we ain't working together soon, you know. You can talk this talk over the camera. We're gonna work together soon, you know. I'm just letting I you know. I'm telling you, I've talked David days the numbers. Bio's coming in. He's hosting MS. Alright, so talk to me, JC, talk to me. What was the changing room like when you when you first broke through to Liverpool? What was the changing room like? Who were the players there? What was your you've listen, you seem like a confident person, you seem like no nonsense, and you've always seemed that way. So when you broke through there, was there an element of nerves? What was the change room like? Who was there? The two the two legendary figures were John Barnes and Ian Rush, and, and the rest of the squad was possibly a little bit younger. They were part of like the, the really successful teams of of the 80s, and they were still there in the mid-90s and most of that squad had gone and moved on and been replaced by the, you know, Jamie Redknapp, Jason McAteer, Robbie Fowler, Mac Manaman, Collie Moore, so some great names and some great players. But they were the two standout legends where, you know, if you were in their presence, you basically really behaved yourself and uh, there was no way winding them up or giving them a quick uh, fired answer. They, they were so so well thought of by everybody at the club. They were almost, well, not almost, but they were gods really for what they'd done for Liverpool, two of the greatest players in the history of the club. So they were the uh, the captain and vice-captain in the squad when I first got into it. So I actually played in the reserves with Ian Rush. I didn't play in the first team with Rush. He, he just moved on as I was getting involved with the first team. But we played reserves together a couple of times and I played a couple of games with John Barnes in, in midfield together in my first season because it was his, uh, his last season 
then. And uh, I mean, as I said, privilege for me to say I've, I've played with two of the greatest players in, in Liverpool's history. John Barnes was, as a youngster, and everybody asks the question, I'm a Londoner, born and raised in London, why am I such a passionate Liverpool supporter? And it was because of John Barnes. I mean, it's crazy, I've said this many times, I played nothing like him as much as I idolised him, I played nothing like him. But John Barnes was the reason why I supported Liverpool, so to know that you was in the changing room. Like, going in there, JC, was John Barnes, and like you said, I think you touched on it, Ian Rush, were they intimidating to you? Were they like, oh, rah, like they come into a room and... Yeah, I've got to stop giggling. Were they the most two intimidating figures? I wouldn't say they were intimidating. They weren't that type. I mean, Ian Rush was a lot quieter than John Barnes. John Barnes was like the life and soul of a party type of thing. He was he's a great fella, John Barnes. And I love uh, still speaking to him now. He's always, you know, he's funny, he's, he's energetic, he's got personality. Uh, so, so no, I got on really well with John Barnes, as everyone did. I don't think anyone really, you, you couldn't not like John Barnes and, and the respect you had for him as a player, but not just a player for what he'd done in the past on the left wing, how good he was still playing central midfield for Liverpool. He was still almost the best player in training every day, really. He was just... He, I think him and Jan Mulby, I would say, two of the best players I've ever trained with. And Jan was more in the reserves as well as he was falling out of the first team. Whereas you'd have great players, and I, and I include Stevie in that. Stevie's the, obviously the best player I've ever played with. But in terms of like people who are a little bit different, they're not normal. I would class Barnes and Mulby like that, but you could do things with the ball that you just you didn't think were possible, really. And they're real, real special players and just shows how good those teams were in the 80s. Who did you learn your good habits from, Cara? You know, around the training ground, that, that sort of professionalism that, that, and that leadership that you carried through the rest of your career? To be honest, when I first got into the team, I, I wouldn't say that the habits were great with the first team. I think that's been well documented about that era of, uh, of players. But that, it wasn't just that era. I think even the great players I'm talking about, there was a big drinking culture. But I was always very competitive. And I think when you say good habits, good habits means training well. But it wasn't a case of me waking up in the morning and thinking, right, I'm going to train well today or I'm going to give 100%. I just always had something in me where I, I was very competitive and could get wound up very easily. And if my team was losing in a game or I wasn't playing particularly well, that would rile me. So I never, ever sort of coasted through a training session because if I, if I performed badly in a training session, it'd annoy me. And I didn't like being annoyed after training or, you know, when you've had a poor performance in a game, you, you don't like the feeling. You, it carries with you. Know, I was a little bit like that if I had a really poor training session. So that that made me have those habits and that. And I think that's something within, definitely. And I, and I don't think I needed anyone to sort of, tell me or push me to do that I think I was very lucky that was one of my big strengths other players had other strengths maybe physicality better technically than me whatever it may be but my big strengths a lot was what was going on inside my head which was very competitive very focused and has a really good understanding of the game and people had other strengths but that, that helped me push myself every day Talking about like the Liverpool team in the 90s of course me the big rivals was Liverpool Arsenal for me being a London man. Um, so what was it in the 90s that you feel that Liverpool team didn't go on and achieve? And in what to you is the biggest culture difference from that Liverpool team and the kind of Liverpool team of now? What was missing? Well, I think that team actually, I mean, it, it possibly lacked mental strength, but it did. They lacked mental strength, but it had great technical quality, that team. And I think of the team that I played in under Julia and Benitez, we, we were almost the opposite. And we had, we had great physical strength, great mental strength in big games. With us. We weren't as easy on the eye 
as maybe the Roy Evans team that uh, I came into, played some unbelievable football. And you mentioned Arsenal, and uh, it's probably similar, that team, to an Arsene Wenger's Arsenal in the last sort of five or six years, where we all said we played the best football, but we never felt they'd win a big game or they'd win a big trophy. And that, to be, to be fair to Arsene Wenger and Arsenal, they did win some FA Cups. But that Liverpool team really, from, from you know, 96 or 95, I think they won the, uh, the Carlin Cup, for the next two or three years, it should have won something big, really. And, and every time it got close, it just lost the big game. And that was the difference with the teams I played in. We weren't necessarily closer to the league title and then, but we were a different type of team. And when we, we had big games in cups or big semi-finals or finals, whenever we were in a, a moment of difficulty, we'd be able to uh, navigate our way through it, whereas that team would, would fall apart. When you look at uh, this Liverpool team now, Jamie, they obviously had an incredible couple of years, you know, Champions League final, winning the Champions League, two amazing seasons in the Premier League, finally winning the, the Premier League title. Are we seeing that the the sort of the, the small margins? You know, it's only a small margin that they seem to have dropped off, and then there's just been this big drop in in points. And how far, how much is it going to take to get Liverpool back at the summit? Do you think is is it going to take a major surgery or or just a little bit of tweaking here and there? I think just a little bit of tweaking, Dave. I think uh, Liverpool are still one of the top teams out there. I really do. I think when Virgil van Dijk comes in then and you, you get your centre-backs back, I think that puts Liverpool and Man City again as the two best teams in the country. And I think maybe when you talk about tweaking in the summer, maybe bringing one or two players in. So they need to bring a centre-back in, whether that's Kabak, who's already there now, who's on loan. But they definitely need to bring a goal scorer in. I don't know exactly what position... Four. And what I mean by that is I'm not sure if I mean a centre-forward or a midfield player because Liverpool don't score any goals from midfield. And at the moment, they're massively relying on Salah and Mane and no one else looks like they're going to score. So Jota's been a miss. But whether Jota would ever be first choice in a Liverpool team, I'm not sure yet. He made a great start when he came in. But I think you need to add goals to the team. And whether that's, as I said, a midfield player who scored goals because it looks like Wijnaldum's going to move on. Or... It's a case of actually doing something different through the middle in terms of uh, Bobby Firmino. Because we actually look at Liverpool's attacking players, they don't actually have a striker. Jota's not a striker, he's a wide player. Same with Mane, same with Salah. They've got Divock Origi, but he's nowhere near good enough. And he, a lot of the time, plays out wide because he can't play as a centre forward. So Bobby Firmino plays that role, but we always talk about him being a false nine. So he's not an actual out and out striker. So I think Liverpool could do with bringing a striker in just to shake things up and, and primarily someone who gets goals because I think there's too much pressure on those two players at the top end of the pitch to score goals. And if they don't score, Liverpool don't look like scoring. And what was interesting from last night in the Champions League game was, yes, Liverpool won 2-0 and it looks a lot rosier, but Liverpool capitalised on two big mistakes from the opposition. They didn't actually create that much themselves. And that is a big problem for Liverpool at the moment, scoring goals and creating sort of big chances. Yes, they were very clinical on the back of uh, you know, the opposition making mistakes, but they didn't really open the opposition up. So that could have easily been a nil-nil game or it could have been a game you lose 1-0. As what happened at Leicester, Liverpool played really well, no different to last night, 70 minutes in, not creating too much but dominating the game and then you make a mistake and you lose the game. Last night, the opposition made this mistake. So... I think there's a, there's definitely room for a, for a goal scorer in the team. 
Bio, this could be your moment. Oh, please, man. My body, my body doesn't want to do smoke. My body don't want to smoke. <laughs> but listen, before we go back and touch on your career, earlier career, just as being an avid Liverpool supporter, do you think bringing in a goal scorer will take away from Liverpool's style in the sense where you know that Firmino does enhance and, you know, he's selfless, allows the... I'm going to say that Salah's selfish or money selfish, but it allows them to take more of the limelight would a goal scorer come in and kind of upset that apricot or are you still just thinking that a goal scorer is a goal scorer and Liverpool need that yeah listen I'm not, I'm not that I understand what you're saying and it's not necessarily I'm saying just bring a centre forward and you're just thinking about goals Liverpool's goal scorer is Salah yeah so you very rarely get two teams who have two top goal scorers who score all the goals there's normally one if, if you were picking a perfect team you'd have your main goal scorer gets 25, 30 goals a season. Salah's now on 24. Your next guy who get goals, you, you, maybe between 15 and 20. Then your next guy's getting between 10 and 15. And then you get players who chip him at three or four goals. But as I said, Firmino doesn't score enough for me. And I, and I know exactly what he does for the team, but I, I do actually think those numbers have dropped off in terms of winning the ball back. And I just think... If you're playing centre-forward for one of the best teams in Europe, you've got to bring a bit more than Firmino is right now. I love him. He's been amazing for Liverpool, but we analysed this on Monday Night Football and he is the one player out the front three who I worry about in terms of keeping this front three together. And very rarely do front threes, the same players play week in, week out for this length of time. This front three for Liverpool have played longer than any front three that we really analysed in the Premier League era. It's normally two or three years, then something changes. So I, I, I think Liverpool needs a change in the front three, whether that's Jota, whether they buy someone in the summer, I do think that front three needs shaking up. Unfortunately, that would be Bobby Firmino coming out the team and someone going in. Whether it's a, a similar type to him or it's an out-and-out striker and you maybe do something slightly different or, as they did when Jota came in, they play a front four and Firmino almost becomes a number 10. Then it's not so much a problem because you are getting an extra goal scorer on the pitch. You've got three players that you think can score a goal. When I'm watching Liverpool now, I only see two players who can score. Why don't we get Jamie on on what I think was probably the greatest night of his life in in 2005? You must have some questions for him on that. I can remember it. So you just must close your eyes and always see it. So first question I want to ask. So you had some real ballers coming at you. So talk to me. Was you... And I, I, listen, I don't know you because you go like you're a bit tough and that. But, you know, having the players like Kaka, <laughs> Pirlo, Seedov, Crespo, Shevchenko. So when you see that lineup, talk to me real, yeah? What was it like when they were running at you? Like when they were just coming at you? Was you like, bring it on? Or was you just like, we're in for a long night? I thought that after uh, at, at half time, certainly that was going to be a long night, no doubt. But uh, no, I mean, I'm not someone who, who ever worried too much about who I was up against. And that, that's not being arrogant, to be honest. It was more a case of, I always felt if, if I would play well because of me. And if I didn't play well, it was down to me. It wasn't a case, oh, I'm playing against this player or whatever. I always felt my performance was down to me, not really what I was up against. So if I was in the right position, if my positional play was good, if they did something amazing, you know, there's nothing I can do. If they do a great goal or a great skill or something like that, I never sort of blame myself for that. I just say it's great play. So, you know, if I made a mistake or I was out of position, that was down to me. So I never really worried about who I was up against. I, I had a spell for a couple of years where I used to worry about playing against Henri, really, because he was uh, he's probably the one player who, uh, I would say, got into my head before I played him for a couple of years. Why? Why? T- t- tell me why. No, because he was that good and he causes that many problems, okay. really. And you, you got to the stage where you weren't quite sure how to handle him. 
really, because he, he had everything, great strength, ability on the ball, pace. He was sort of better than you at everything. As a defender, there's always one area feel you can get the better of an attacker in a situation. But him, for a stage, it didn't feel like that, really. Uh, and then you get to grips with it. You know, you, you come up, you get confidence, you win the odd game against Arsenal. We went on a, a really good run, I think, towards the end of his Arsenal time. Uh, probably from 2004 or five for, for the next few years, we had a really good record against Arsenal when he was playing. So sometimes it's the team that they're playing in, which was an amazing team, which makes him look even better. Then when the team drops off, he, he's not as good. We're a better team, you know. So those things play play into that really. So the era I'm talking about was when Arsenal were at their best. I think from 2002 to 2004, I think they won two league titles. They should have won three, really. I think in 2003 they threw the league away. And they should have won a Champions League in that stage as well, really. So, uh, no, that was a great team. But, no, I was uh, I wouldn't say I was massively worried about who I was up against in that final. It was more concentrating on us. And and we'd actually felt we played teams who were as good as Milan. We played Juventus and they uh, they won Serie A that season. So, we'd knocked Juventus out. And that had Del Piero, Ibrahimovic, Nedved, Buffon, Turam, Cannavaro. So, you know, that was uh, a great team also. So, that, that gave us confidence. Being free, no Dan, been there plenty of times. So what what was <laughs> so what was the team talk at half time? Well, I mean, Rafa Benitez is not a, a manager to give a big sort of rousing speech. He's, he's not that, he's analytical. And what he did, he, he changed things around. So he, he made a substitution at half time, he changed the system of the team. He brought Didi Man on to stop Kaker, who was running riot in that first half. So I think Rafa looks back at that and I think Liverpool supporters do as, as his greatest moment as a manager, really changing things. You can say he maybe made a mistake with the team. I think even Rafa was holding his hands up to that because we made a big mistake by playing Didi Man. We played a different team in the final and we played right throughout the competition. So Rafa always liked to try and uh, keep the opposition guessing. The only problem was he kept us guessing with that team when he put that one out. And, uh, we, uh, we changed it round at half-time. And uh, that is a major impact. Yeah, you can talk about performances and, and heart and commitment and fighting and, and getting goals. But a big part of that game was the uh, the tactical setup and the changes that we made at halftime. What about the party? Oh, that was an heavy one. That was a, that was a five-day bender. Jeez. So that was when the Champions League final used to be a Wednesday. So it wasn't like a Saturday night now. So, so it was Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I finished Sunday. So, yeah. Is that a five-day yet? So I uh, <laughs> celebrated in the hotel until sort of four or five in the morning. Thursday was the homecoming. So we were out again after that, after we got off the bus. And the homecoming, there must have been a million people on the streets of Liverpool. It was amazing. Bio talks about the actual game, Cara, but that must have been, you know, when you come out and you see that many people on the streets, and you know they're all there to celebrate you and your performance. That must have been right up there for you. Yeah, it was special. It was almost as good as the game that and, and realising what the effect that you know the game has had on people and and listen, it's nothing to do with me. It's just sometimes you're involved in a game that that's mad famous, people remember it. And uh, I think it was more than winning the Champions League. I think when we saw the people on the streets, it was like it's one of those moments where I think everyone can remember where they were when they watched it and the emotions they had watching it, whether you were a fan of Liverpool or another team. I know of Everton fans who were basically would not go out the house because Liverpool were in a European Cup final. As soon as it was 3-0 at half-time, they left the house, straight the pub. They got the pub. By the time they got there, it was 3-3. You know, so the emotions of every supporter <laughs> watching that game, 
you can imagine in Italy, can't you? The Milan fans, the emotions for them, the, the emotions of the Inter Milan fans, you know, watching that game. Because, you know, football is so tribal and the rivalries are so big. And I just think it's a game that will never be forgotten because of, it was so up and down in the game. And the emotions, you know, just went from uh, zero to 100 very quickly. That's the great shame of the Wickham, uh, the Wickham celebrations, Bio. Yeah, yeah, but we had to try and do it COVID, so... You get to the championship for the first time ever and you're not allowed on the streets to celebrate it. That, let me tell you something. Like It's funny because, don't get it twisted, everybody's cup final is their own. You know what I'm saying? So even though I'm not talking about Champions League, but the championship was my Champions League, if you know what I mean, in that period. So you're right. Not being able to celebrate with the fans, it kind of took that life which you're taking. So you got to do both. You got to play the game, win, and then celebrate with your fans. So we played the game, we won, and celebrated it with ourselves and the family. So we missed out on that side of it. But listen, nobody can take away what we achieved. So I totally get what you're saying. And But... What can you do, man? Life is life. Life is life. And, and you know, it's all about um, sliding doors, isn't it? And there's Jamie Carragher, one of the best young defenders in English football, one of the best centre-backs in English football. But he comes along at a time when Rio Ferdinand is there, John Terry is there. How many caps do you think you should have got, Jamie? No, no, I wouldn't complain about the, the caps I got, really, and, and the number. Of, what I, I would say is that I was lucky in that it was an era when Sven used to make lots of changes at half time, so there's there's lots of players that you look back. If you go to maybe the the eighties, early nineties, the seventies, great centre backs who have come out with like seven or eight caps because it it almost felt like a bigger thing then to actually represent your country. And you know, there's probably no pullouts, there was no you know mass changes of substitution. So I think I played uh, was it thirty nine, Dave? No, thirty eight caps I played, and uh, I mean I'd have possibly got fifty if I hadn't. Uh, Stopped playing for a couple of years because uh, Capello at that time was desperate to get me back involved. Kept speaking to Stevie Gerrard. I think he saw me then as almost, you know, the next one behind Rio and John Terry. Whereas I think all the previous managers had taken me for granted a little bit. And that used to frustrate me. Really, I was always seen as just a squad player with England carried. He can play a few positions. And in the end, that got to me a bit. And that's why I, uh, I, I stopped going and didn't want to play or be involved anymore. Because I wasn't playing. I was playing in Champions League finals for Liverpool. I was playing as well as anyone in the position at that time in, in the Champions League, really, or there or thereabouts. And uh, I think I was just seen as a, a squad player. And I think I give Steve McLaren a big fright when I said I, I wasn't involved, no money. He almost panicked and wanted to... Uh, he said he'd play me in the next game and he'd give me more games. And, and then I felt like, well, I don't want to play. I feel like I've bullied you now into, into picking me. You know, I, I think you are. You are I think you just took me for granted. A little bit of England is like... <laughs> You know, we've all got players at your own club where, you know, they're just, they're just there and they always do a job for you and you never miss training and they're a good lad and you can play a few positions. And I'm actually playing in Champions League finals for, for Liverpool. And I was like, nah. So uh, I just, uh, I pulled out of it really. And I only went back, to be honest, because Capello was the manager. It was nothing to do with my country, if I'm being totally honest. It was more to do with it. I wanted to work with Capello and see what he was like because he was obviously a legendary manager. He asked me back. He'd been after me for a couple of years. And uh, there was a few injuries, to be fair, when he when he asked me. I wouldn't have just gone back and took someone's place. But there was a few injuries before the World Cup and it was the draw of Capello was the reason I went back. So was it worth it for that experience with Capello? I mean, I played in another World Cup. I got a couple of appearances. I was expecting a little bit more. I don't think the language barrier helped. I had visions of Capello drilling the back four and giving me information that I hadn't heard before. This is a manager who's had Maldini and Baresi. So I was expecting that. I didn't get as much as that as uh, I would have wanted. 
But that is not a criticism of Capello. And Capello got a lot of criticism from players on the back of that tournament. And I just think, how can you criticise Capello? He's won leagues and, you know, the best probably team, along with Barcelona and Guardiola, that I've seen in those early 90s, AC Milan, won the European Cup, went to Madrid, won two leagues, went to Rome, won the league. So his way of, of managing works. So, you know, I wouldn't point the finger at Capello. Probably point the, he'd probably point the finger at these at us players and say we're not good enough, and rightly so. So he was basically Mourinho before Mourinho come on the scene, the serial winner who went everywhere and just won. So I was just uh, delighted to be around and listening to him. And I, I, no, I loved him. But I don't. I think the language uh, was obviously a little bit of a problem in terms of being on the train and pitch and giving information out. Do you feel that your ability was overlooked and they only concentrate on your heart? So you know they talk about you know what Jamie Carragher, you know pure heart, loves to tackle, but your ability, the way you spray balls, playing right back, playing centre back, um, starting attacks. Do you think your ability was overlooked because of your mannerisms? Yeah, I think so, but I don't think that's just me. I think that's that's I think that's footballers in general. I think we 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 pigeonhole footballers. I always say this about Roy Keane. You'd probably say similar things about Roy Keane, but Roy Keane was one of the best passers of a ball in midfield. And he'd get on the ball, but no one ever speaks about Roy Keane's passing. It's the same with Gary Neville. Gary Neville gets described the same as me. But when I used to watch Gary Neville as a, when I was a player and I'd watch Man United games, Gary Neville's passing into the front players was, was really good. I think my I wouldn't have played for Liverpool if I could if he couldn't pass. You know that 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 was my that was my biggest strength while I was coming through the ranks. That's why I was at the club. I wasn't a dribbler. As a young player, you don't really get picked on having heart or being good defensively or tackling. When, when you're in a, an academy and you're coming through the ranks, it's all about technical qualities and and the attack and play. That's and then when you get older, you know formations coming to at eleven v eleven. So when you're a younger player, I was I was a technical player. I was I was a really good. Passing the ball, that was my biggest strength. I couldn't dribble even as a youngster, even when I was a striker. I wasn't, you know, I scored goals, but I was really good at holds up play, and that was my big strength at Lillyshaw. When I was 14 or 15, it was a big thing if you could, you know, play the ball into me as holds it up, bring people into play, play clever passes, and uh, yeah, that was my strength. So, but listen, that's, you know, I'm not comparing myself because what, what happens is when you get to a certain level, I was a great passer of the ball coming through the ranks, but then you get to Premier League level and top Champions League level. But when you're talking about a top passer, you're talking Xabi Alonso. Now, I'm not Xabi Alonso, so what you've basically got to do is every level you're at, what your strengths are, and that determines what level we go to. So what your strengths are, it's how far you can go with them still being your strengths. And then someone might get to League 2, and then that's it. My, my strengths are, you know, passing, running, goals, whatever it is. They will always be my strengths. It's just that they wouldn't be my strength or they wouldn't be strong enough to play at the next level. So if I was playing in the lower leagues, and I'm, I'm not taking the piss like I was before, but if I was playing in the, in the lower leagues, I'd probably be seen as a, a technical centre-back who could pass and come out from the back. But if you're then comparing me to Rio Ferdinand, I'm not as good as him at that. So that's his. That's a really high level in the Premier League. So I'm, I'm just good at that in the Premier League, even though it was one of my strengths the standards at every level that you go to the next level are obviously a lot higher and, and that's where it comes from so if I had played a lower leg level as opposed to being seen as a, a really good passer of the ball but when you get to you know the really highest level of what we're talking about now top Europe and, and you know top Premier League I'm not going to be classed as a really good passer of the ball even though I think it's one of my strengths so when did you develop that mindset? Because, of course, you know, you still was feeling like you was underappreciated. So what age did you 
stop thinking like, look, it's the perception of how they perceive me and you just become the way you're comfortable now. Because I agree totally with what you said. You're comfortable with who you are and with that mindset of coming in, of being able to deal with, well, I'm comfortable with where I am and I'll concentrate on my strengths and not how you perceive me. What age did that kick in for you? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I would imagine probably in the early years you get frustrated slightly and that wasn't how I was, maybe a little bit how you perceived a little bit. Uh, but I've said that's the same for every player, so it, I wouldn't say it bothers me too much. I think with Liverpool, it was like they were, they were constantly looking to replace me in the early years, and that's that's understandable. One of the biggest clubs in the world, they're buying players from all over the world, and, and they want the best. Really, so I, I would say I never felt fully appreciated or fully content until I was probably in my mid to late 20s, where I knew it'd be very difficult for them to replace me. And I was seen as one of the leaders in the team, you know, the vice captain. But that's that's normal. That's not, that's nothing different for me. You know, if you're playing one of the top clubs in the world, you're going to have competition. And I had to fight tooth and nail to make sure I stayed in the club. And, and, and so you should. Everyone should if you're at a club the size of Liverpool. Uh, really. But I think sometimes when you're a local player coming through, maybe you are perceived a little bit differently, good and bad in some ways. And I was not a superstar. So I wasn't Robbie Fowler, I wasn't Michael Owen, I wasn't Steven Gerrard. So it was different for them. They were like, as I said, superstars, but they were the they were the best players in the country in their position when they came through. I mean, they, they were out of this world, whereas I was just, a, you know, obviously a good player to play for Liverpool at 18, but obviously had to do it a different way. Sounds a bit like me, Bayo. I'm not the superstar at Sky, but they keep trying to replace me. These, these are the superstars. <laughs> I still, I still hang on in there. DJ, you hold them together. Don't let, I know what you do. You hold them together. You the glue, my brother. You the glue. <laughs> well, I just want to. It just made me think, Jamie, when you were saying there about you know if, if you if you play at a lower level, you might have been thought of as being you know silky centre back. Was there not a, a, a thought in your mind? I don't think I've really asked you this before about when you stopped at Liverpool and then you retired straight away and you came to work for Sky. Was there not a point where you thought I could fancy playing a season or two down at a lower level and show off my skills a little bit? Hmm. Uh, no, that never entered my mind. I, I was always determined to be a one club man. That was a big passion of mine. I think it's something special, not because, not because of me, but I used to look at other players and I've mentioned Maldini and Berezi. I, I love those figures who you just you associate them in one kit and it's just like Milan. And I always thought of those players and, and it actually saddens me when I see someone who's been at a club a long time and they leave for somewhere for a year. And I just think I'd, I'd rather be a one-club man and have one year less playing somewhere and go somewhere else. But no, I, I think it's difficult as a defender really, because, uh, and, I, and, I, and I look at Rio for this, and I think Rio made a big mistake going to QPR, because when you're a, a top defender and, and you're getting towards the end of your career, you need protection, I don't care how good you are, and you'll get that more protection at a top team because you'll have more of the ball, you'll, you'll win most of your games. When you're playing for a team who are going to be under the cosh more, defending, you know, the players around you aren't as good, you're going to get exposed more, and I think that was... Uh, Certainly a problem for not just, I'm, not, I'm using Rio as an example because he went to QPR I think, for a few months and they uh, they struggled so it wasn't easy for him and he's one of the best so it shows what it is so I always think as a defender I think as a midfield player or an attacker you can still just you know if you're a midfield player you just get on the ball and you want to play and you know if you win you lose it's not down to you I think when you're a defender you can cost your team the game and I certainly at my age wouldn't want to go somewhere and, and cost me you know 
not getting clean sheets, not winning games, making mistakes, and actually not enjoying it. I think it's difficult for a defender to enjoy football unless he's the results are going well. Uh, really, I think for a midfield player it's different. You can come on sub, you can come off, you can have a good game, your team get beat. If you're a defender and your team get beat, you've normally maybe had a role in them getting beat, and that's a, it's not a good place for you mentally. And I also, as I said, just wanted to play for Liverpool, and I thought that was a, a special thing to do. Me, I would have loved you to come down to League One for a season, uh, JC. I would have, I would have <laughs> loved you. <laughs> I would have loved to got to go toe to toe with you. Let me. <laughs> you would have showed your silky and I would have just tried to pin oh, I would have loved it I would have loved it <laughs> but listen though look by the way you talk listen you're knowledgeable and I think that people in the change room with you would have said you know what JC's going to be a coach what made you then go into punditry instead of coaching like did you not ever want to be a coach pass on the knowledge that you've gained throughout your career yeah, I, I did want to be a coach and a manager. I was always going to be one, really. And that—that that is the one thing I think about now. It would be nice to almost pass on things to people and help people. I do think about that. I do it with my son. My son's a young player. I feel like I'm, a, I'm his coach, if you like. So he's me one protege uh, at the moment. But I, don't, I, I never got a real buzz for being on a training ground. When you hear coaches speak now and they talk about, oh, I love the grass, I love being on the training ground, I love getting a session going. That would not get my juices flowing at all, really, uh, trying to organise and set something up and things like that. I love giving them information on Monday Night Football about you know positions and uh, game management and situations. I think that's where I would be good. I, I think what you're talking about is a coaching role, though, Jamie, because you know it's not just – if you think about the elite clubs now, it's not just one coach. You know, they're, they're a team of people that, that the best managers will bring together for their different skills. And I'm sure that somebody would want someone who, um, you know, sees the game in the way that you see it. So if, um, if in a couple of years' time, Stevie goes back to, to Liverpool and he gives you a phone call, you know, Cara, I need you on my management team. What would you say? I'm not quite sure if Dave's asking this for the podcast or he's trying to get Monday Night Football all to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to know. I was going to ask this anyway. I actually want to know. because I'm, I'm going to lead on this question, but answer it. Don't try and get out of it. Uh, no, I, I don't think I would, Dave, to be honest. I mean, Liverpool would be the only club I think I would move, uh, leave Sky for. But I, I love my job that much and I, I think I'm very lucky in that I'm involved in the best football show anywhere. And I want to say anywhere, I don't mean this country. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if in Italy or Spain they have a tactic show like we do or anywhere else in the world. I don't know. I might be wrong. But I think without Monday Night Football and, and that focus it gives me to really, you know, dig deep into football, I think I'd find punditry almost like a part-time job. Really? I think Monday Night Football almost just brings it to another level where it feels like it's you feel like a coach, you feel like a manager, you feel like you're looking at detail, and it's uh, that's what really gets gets my juices flowing about about the game. And I, I think Bio, that the reason that Jamie would be reluctant to leave because he would miss that relationship, not just with me, obviously, but with with Gary Neville as well, who's become his, you know, he's like he's like they're like long lost brothers when they get together. Bio, honestly, do you like him or did you hate him? <laughs> before you started working with him? And was there any reservations? Yeah, I hated them a little bit. Can you hate someone a little bit? Uh, you just hate them, don't you, I suppose? You can hate them a little bit, huh? would you? I've hate, I hate people a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's a big rivalry between the clubs, but he used to wear uh, stoker up. He's kissed his badge. He said things about people from Liverpool. 
And he was just basically playing up to the fanzines in Manchester, trying to get in with the, the, the Man United fans, because basically, who cares about Gary Neville? Even if you're a Man U fan, he's a right-back. Uh, no one's really interested, really, in right-back. So that was way of trying to be popular with the, uh, the Man U fans and getting a song. And then he went on Sky TV and it all come back to haunt him. Then he had to play, uh, you know, Mr Liverpool and support Liverpool and different things to go and get them on side. And you know what? He did get them on side because the amount of times I'm stopped in the street now and saying, oh, Gary Neville's, he's sound, isn't he? He's a great pundit and all that. And I just, uh, just fingers crossed to saying the same about me and Manchester. I'm not <laughs> sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, listen, for me, this has been amazing. I'm not going to lie. Listen, you've always been a legend and you're even a bigger legend to me. So I'm just going to finish off real quick. So JC, with all the players you've played with and all the players you've played against, I want to know who's the best player you've played with and who's the best player you've played against? Well, the best player i played against, I would say Thierry Henry. I think he was the best player in the Premier League or he has been the best player in the Premier League. We've had nothing better since. I think he was the best player in the world for a couple of years around that time, him and Ronaldinho, around 2002 to 2004. So he's a, he's a Premier League great. I'd put him at the top of that list. I mean, played with is the obvious one, Steven Gerrard, but I think interesting is when people ask me who's the next best, and that makes it a little bit more difficult, and you think of Fernando Torres, you think of Xavi Alonso, World Cup winner, you've got Luis Suarez in there, Robbie Fowler, Michael Owen, there's so many to choose from them, but I would... Uh, I would go with Luis Suarez yeah. as, the, as the next best. Uh, yes, I think he took an average Liverpool team to almost the title, really, but for one game. I think what he's done with Uruguay, taking them to a semi-final of a World Cup, winning a Copa America. What he's done with Barcelona, when we felt Barcelona were just almost falling away. And then they won the treble in his first season. And now, Atletico Madrid, a top of the league, and top scorer in La Liga with 16 goals is Luis Suarez. So, this guy is not just a great player. He has a great effect on the teams he plays in. And that is always the sign of a great player. Football is a team game. It's not an individual game. It's what you do for your team and where you take them. And I don't think there's been many better in this generation than Luis Suarez. Aye, bad boy answer. I like the way you finished that, man. Yeah, Punditry was made for you, JC. Punditry was made for you. <laughs> you know the score, by <laughs> This is what you don't know, Bio. This has been your audition for Monday Night Football. Now, don't say that because Gary Neville will be switching on me and he doesn't hold his tongue and then I'll have to bear hug him. I, I think what would be interesting is a little uh, bench press competition between you two. Why are you gassing him up? No, it wouldn't. Oh, come on now. <laughs> have you seen his muscles, Bio? He's got some He's got some proper muscles. Yeah. Listen, he, <laughs> listen. <laughs> You don't get them peeling spuds. <laughs> <laughs> but JC already said it. His strength can only take him to so far. And then there's another level. You <laughs> I know, bless it. <laughs> I listen, I've already said it. JC, thank you for giving me your time out here. They said don't meet your legends. That's a damn lie. I've met you and you was great. Straight peace mode. And I'll see you soon on Monday Night Football, yeah? You will. Can't wait for you to join us, mate. Bye. All, all the best. Absolutely loved it. And thank you. My blessings. Thank you, brother. Yo, another epic interview. Jeez, they say don't meet your legends, but I'm so glad I met mine. DJ, thank you for bringing JC. He's good people, isn't it? That's my pleasure, Bio. You know, he's he's salt of the earth and uh, you ask him a question and as you say, he gives you a straight answer. That's all you, all you can ask for, isn't it? 
Yeah, man. Yeah. So would you say that you kind of felt a different vibe to JC like on the podcast than the Monday night or was just that that's always JC? There was a bit of a different vibe because he comes in on a Monday night football and he's got his waistcoat on and he's got his tie up to his neck and he's got his jacket on and he's got his hair pressed <laughs> perfectly and, and you know he's a bit more laid back today. I think you brought I think he brought a bit a different vibe out of him, Bio. Ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. But to be fair, we did have him at um a hotel, so the Wi-Fi may have been a bit shaky. So we apologize on that, folks. You know what I'm saying? If it was if there was a little bit of delay, he was in a hotel. All right, people, it's time to look at the Super 6 fixtures for round 36. Download the Super 6 app, create an account and play for free by predicting the scores of six chosen matches to be in with a chance to win £250,000 this week. Another reminder that you can invite your friends to join Super 6 and if any of them that you invited go on to win the jackpot, they will win £25,000. Pounds. It's prediction time. DJ, talk to me. All right. Well, we've got one from the Premier League for you by Burnley West Brom. What do you think? I'm going to say 2-1 Burnley. That looks a pretty safe prediction, doesn't it, right now? I think West Brom are just getting a bit better. We saw them against Manchester United. Looked like uh, the new signings were starting to make an impact, maybe. So that's the only thing you would say on that. So 2-1, I suppose, feels like you're hedging your bets a little bit. What about uh, QPR Bournemouth? I'm going to say 1-0 Bournemouth. Norwich Rotherham is is top of the table, bottom of the table scenario. Yeah, but Rotherham have picked up some results recently, and but I will say one nil Norwich. One nil Norwich. These are all tough to call. I have to say, yeah. Nottingham Forest Blackburn again in the Championship. I'm going to go two nil Blackburn. Reading still going well up against Middlesbrough. I'm going to say two one Reading home win. Home win. I wonder if you go home win on this last one. Huddersfield, Swansea. Now I'm going away win. I'm going to go 3-1 Swansea. 3-1 to Swansea. I'm glad I don't have to make these predictions as well, Bio. Good calls and all that. All right, that's it for this week. First, I've got a shout out. Thank you, JC. Jamie Carragher. Epic, legendary. DJ, all right, thank you for coming on. But listen, now I've got you here, like... When you get me on Monday Night Football, I'm, I'm just, when you, when you get me on. I uh, will speak to your agent, Bio. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, your people call my people, my people call your people. <laughs> you know what? I'll take that, my brother. i tell you what, we've got loads of games coming up, so we've got lots of space to get uh, some fun guests on. Uh, do you know what? It's been a pleasure working with you, Bio. You, you're an absolute big ball of fun, and it's, it's oh. been great. My brother, I take that. I'll take that. <laughs> All right, people. Remember to get involved on Twitter. Follow us at Super6 or use the hashtag Super6Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe so that the podcast can download automatically each week, every week. All right, DJ, thank you very much. Everybody else, see you next week.